community.com. Good morning, everyone. Uh, hope you had a Merry Christmas and want to, in advance, wish you a Happy New Year. Um, really excited uh, to start off the new year heading into this series, First and Second Samuel, um, that we're diving into. I think there's a lot of great things here, a lot of practical things that will be helpful for us, but um, just a really significant couple of books of the Bible that we're diving into. And so throughout this series, we're going to kind of work through it, um, and, and I'm just kind of previewing how we're diving in this morning. Uh, the first few chapters we're going to go through fairly slowly. Um, we're going to look at those chapters a little bit more in depth, and then uh, we'll start to pick things up um, as we go along. There's really three main segments that we'll be focusing on, from, and we'll cover this from like now until Easter. But um, the first segment really revolves around Samuel, and uh, we'll get into the start of his story this morning. Um, the second segment is uh, about Saul, uh, Israel's first king, and then the third segment will be about King David. Um, and so it'll just go uh, maybe a couple of weeks in each segment, and we'll be rolling through. So uh, as we do that, if you wa- want to, in your Bible, you can open up and follow along on the mornings. You can open up in your Bible app, but we will have uh, text on the screen as well if you're more comfortable with that. Now, a uh, little bit of background information when it comes to Samuel, uh, the books of Samuel, before we dive in. Originally, this was like one big work that had been divided into two. It had been broken down into two parts. Um, some of it was written by Samuel. Uh, But much of it occurs after his death. So, those parts were not. (laughs) He did not write those parts. Um, Most Jewish scholars believe that it was written by Samuel, Gad, and Nathan, these three men who were like prophets of God. And they kind of recounted uh, these events historically as, as they unfolded. The events of 1 and 2 Samuel take place around a thousand years before the time of Christ. Um, again, three main characters we'll focus in on, Samuel and his life, Saul and David, and spend a, a few weeks on each of them. Now, if you go back to the beginning of Scripture, what we see in the history as God uh, is at work in the lives of people, God had pretty much spoken directly with his chosen person or people, leaders, directly throughout uh, his journey Uh, in in the scriptures that we read about, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua, right? God spoke to them directly and uh, led the people through those individual leaders. But as 1 Samuel begins, it had been about 300 years uh, since God led the people under Joshua to uh, inhabit the land that he had promised to them. He was the last one God had spoken through in kind of a a prophet leader-like form where he led all of the people. And so over that time, uh, the the Jewish people and the the tribes, the 12 tribes, had settled into specific areas of the land. Um, Those tribes were more or less this kind of loose confederation of territories. Like they had no single leader, no central government, um, no real... um, like political type oversight. 
Now, spirituality was pretty messy in those days. God had established the tribe of Levi to uh, be priests for the religious service. So he had a provision for them for spiritual leadership among the people. But the people weren't really following the priests, and the priests weren't really doing what they were supposed to do either, right? So it was pretty messy that way. So consequently, what we see is this kind of pattern that happens where uh, the, people of, the people followed God for a little while after Joshua led them into their territories and all was good, but they drifted away from God. And then God disciplined them, right? He, he, would, uh, he would usually allow an enemy, uh, an enemy people to come in and to, to uh, oppress them or to take over them so that they would cry out to him and turn their hearts back to him. Now, that seems like, boy, that's a cruel thing that God would do, but in all honesty, if you look in Scripture, he told them that's what was going to happen. <laughs> right? If you, you drift off from me, this is going to happen. Other people will come over and take over, and, and then you'll cry out to me. And God, in his mercy, would have compassion on them. So he would, he would raise up someone to deliver them out of that oppression. And those were the time of the judges. Right? He would raise up a judge to set them free. Now, once they had that freedom, they would go back to following God for a while. <laughs> they would drift back into sin. They would turn away from him. And God would allow someone else to come in and oppress them again until they would cry out to him. And then once again, he'd raise up another judge and deliver them. He had mercy on them. He had compassion. And this pattern kept repeating. The problem was is each time they came back to the Lord, it was with like a little bit less fervor than they originally had. And each time they drifted into sin, it got worse and worse and worse. So they're kind of in this downward spiral spiritually where things are constantly getting worse. Now, besides these judges that God raises up, uh, there were prophets who received word from God. They were sometimes called seers in the, in the Scripture. He'd give them a message to warn people to call them back to him. But really, we're still about, in the timeline, about 200 years away from the more notable prophets that we read about in Scripture. If you know Scripture well, there's a lot of prophetic books in the Bible. They're the messages of these prophets. We're still about 200 years before you're going to start hearing or, or seeing those pop up. So, in this time... There is all kinds of spiritual chaos going on in the land. The notion that people would somehow wholeheartedly just choose on their own to follow and obey God, <laughs> it was proven to be foolish. And, and the book of Judges ends with a, a pretty uh, famous, I guess, saying that basically it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So everyone was basically doing what they thought was best. And what they thought was best was nowhere near good enough. It was nowhere near what God hoped for for them. So this is the scene, this is the situation that's taking place as we dive into uh, 1 Samuel. And in the midst of all of this chaos and this spiritual mess, we kind of zoom in on one particularly troubled woman named Hannah who's facing this agonizingly painful situation. And yet in the midst of it, she turns to the Lord for help, and he hears her. As we dive into this story, 
my hope this morning, my prayer this morning, is really that this particular story, we would be able to identify with this particular woman and what she went through. And maybe think about situations or circumstances in our lives where we can say, yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. Okay, so let's pray as we dive into to God's Word this morning. And um, Father God, uh, we thank you for your Word. That these, these are more than just stories. But they're things you want us to know about your character, your nature, your heart. They're things that you want us to see in the characters in these stories that help us kind of fashion our lives around what you long for them to be. And Lord, as we dive into this series and into this text this morning, would you just prompt on our hearts where we need to recognize just the, the, the difficulty that we sometimes have in trusting that you are an incredibly big God. And God, as we dive into this, would you speak to us? Each person that's here we know is coming into this morning in a different place, in a different circumstance. And yet you speak to each one of us directly if we open our hearts to you. So we want to do that this morning. Just guide us and lead us in this time, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen. All right, so let's dive in. First uh, Samuel, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. And we're going to go, by the way, today through verse 16. So just for catching your bearings there. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Someone from Ephraim, right? He had two wives. Okay. So the first person we hear about in this story is Elkanah of Ephraim. And that's about really all we know about him besides some lineage, right? Some, some lineage, some things that are going on, where he comes from, who, what clan he's a part of. He isn't particularly notable, really, or anything, except that he has two wives. Now, at times in the Bible, we're, we do see uh, men who have multiple wives. I think it's important to realize that this is really not portrayed favorably. <laughs> okay? It's really not. There are almost always big issues that are occurring whenever we read the stories of these imperfect people. Right? While the Bible doesn't explicitly come out and say, you know, no multiple wives, no polygamy, it's never really portrayed as normal. Right? It's clearly like not God's intent or his design. It's not his plan. And remember, people are doing what was right in their own eyes. Not necessarily what was right in God's eyes. So Elkanah has two wives. And there's, we're going to see there's great conflict between them. In verse 2, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. Uh, sorry, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, 
He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Okay. Infertility in this time was perceived to be a curse of sorts. Right? It was normal for a woman to be able to give birth to children. Not having children was seen as being rejected and unloved by God. Even though in some cases it wouldn't have even been the woman's fault. <laughs> right? It may have been her husband who was, not, who was infertile. But here we know the issue lies with Hannah. Because Penina didn't have any trouble getting pregnant by Elkanah. So the issue was definitely with her. Her barrenness for her would have been this incredible source of grief and shame and disgrace. That's how it would have been perceived. And verse 6 says, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now again, consider this. So Elkanah has two wives and they're called rivals. <laughs> nice family dynamic, right? They're rivals with each other. They feel they're in competition with each other. Why? Because the reality is they are. Right? One wife will be favored and the other one forgotten. And that could change. It could shift depending on the season of life, how the husband felt, that sort of thing. Now, it might feel better, I guess, if you were maybe the wife who was favored a little bit more. But it still couldn't feel good for either one of them to be sharing this man between them. You can only imagine the kind of bitterness and frustration and hurt a situation like that would bring. Verse 7 says, So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So Penina, she provokes Hannah each time and says they went up to the house of the Lord. Now, the text indicates that Penina had a number of sons and daughters, plural. Sons, plural. Daughters, plural. That means there had to be at least four kids total, right? It's likely there were even more, but there were at least four. So practically, that's what? Like, at least five years or more that this had gone on? Probably even significantly longer that she was being provoked? That's a long time to endure that kind of... Yeah, behavior and attitude thrown her way. But it seems like there's even more to it than just being provoked by a rival because Penina is mocking her when they went to worship. When they went to worship. I mean, think about that. That's, that's like the opposite of what should be going on when we go to worship, shouldn't it? Right? Like a real encounter with God should be something that stirs up a love for people, a compassion for people, right? <laughs> for someone especially who's hurting like Hannah is. But for Benina, it's just another opportunity to stick the knife in even deeper. It also seems that Penina is not just mocking Hannah because she's barren, but also for believing that God is going to answer her. Remember, the stigma here is, yeah, God doesn't love you. Like, how foolish of Hannah to believe that God would hear her prayer and answer it. Like, you can imagine the taunts. You naive woman. 
Why do you keep asking God for a baby? God isn't listening to you. He's the one who closed your womb in the first place, probably because of some terrible thing you've done or some terrible kind of person you are. You're cursed. God doesn't love you. He probably doesn't even hear you. That's the kind of ridicule, the kind of situation that Hannah is probably dealing with. And that's just from the one person. So not only is she being mocked from her because of her barrenness, but she's being, in essence, mocked for her faith, her belief that God will come through. Verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> like, I'm seeing faces going, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Elkanah is of no help. <laughs> right? He's a little bit stuck on himself. Like, it's like he's saying, why are you so sad? You got me and I'm awesome. <laughs> it's apparently so awesome that he was just too much man for one wife. She had to share him with another one. I know, there's no consolation coming from him. Verse 9 says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, this is a small detail, but I think it's significant because it shows something about Hannah's character. Right? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. So her husband says, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And, and she despite his insensitivity, she still showed him the respect and did what he asked of her. I mean, that's kind of commendable. And after this, she rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Okay, now this seat was likely a chair, like a throne of state kind of thing, where the high priestly judge would sit. Right? He would serve either as a judge, someone who would, would hear the disputes and answer those who came to him for advice, but as high priest probably to also inspect and direct the worship of God that was going on as needed. So like we find out right away that Eli is a priest with great authority at this time. Okay? Verse 10 says she, talking about Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Right? Now she's making a vow to the Lord. That's the significance Short version, the significance of no razor shall touch his head. But basically, Hannah is bargaining with God. She's bargaining with God. Like, if you do this for me, God, here's what I promise I will do. <laughs> Ever done that? <laughs> no, because not all of you are pastors, right? <laughs> God, just get me out of this mess and I'll get... No, I'm just kidding. But we do hear stories of, of people who did that, right? God, just save me, just rescue me from this, and I'll do anything you want me to do. Well, she says, give me a son, and I promise I will give him back to you for your purposes. Now, 
Now think, think about this for a minute. Because of the disgrace and the depression that Hannah is feeling, she is so desperate for relief that she's willing to give up her child if the Lord answers her. Right? She's willing to give up the very thing that she wants most just to be vindicated and validated by God. See, at this point, it isn't even about the relationship that she could have with the child anymore. If she gave him to the Lord's service, she would have him for a time. You know, typically, it'd be like three to five years, kind of a weaning and growing period before she would turn him over, and then she'd turn him over to the priests once he was ready. She wouldn't get to experience or enjoy the companionship of her child like a normal mother would. The only thing she was going to get out of this was the relief of knowing she was able to have a child. She would get that stigma taken away, removed from her. And the satisfaction, of course, of knowing that God heard her prayer and answered. But that relationship with the child, that thing that she wanted most, she was willing to give that up. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, it's, um, it probably should be noted here that most of these temple prayers that were made would be done kind of publicly, verbally, like spoken out loud. So, in fairness to Eli, he sees this and he thinks that's eh, something that's different. But Hannah, what's going on, she's so depressed that her words were not audible. She's praying and her lips are moving, but you can't hear her. And Eli, of course, thinks, oh, she's drunk. What else would be going on here? Real sensitive. But, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. <laughs> she hasn't been, you know, pouring back the wine. She's simply pouring out her heart. She's pouring out her soul to the Lord. Like, what a beautiful statement. Now, obviously there's more to this story, and we're going to continue on this uh, next week. Um, spoiler alert, she has a baby. <laughs> and his name is Samuel. He turns out to be something pretty significant. But I want to stop here for today in this story because I think there's some, something significant that we should consider for ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God and our prayers. Hannah had a really, really difficult situation that she couldn't do anything about. She was praying desperately, even bargaining with God for something that not only seemed impossible, but it actually was impossible for her. The text tells us that God had closed her womb. Right? Now think about that. 
If God closed the womb, who's going to undo that? Right? Only a miracle was going to fix this situation. If God didn't come through, there really was no other hope. And this wasn't just a new discovery for her. This had been going on for years. But she kept asking anyway. Despite being mocked, despite her uncaring husband, despite a priest who thought she was drunk, she didn't hit the bottle. She, she went to her knees in prayer. She poured out her heart to the Lord. And she let him be her source of hope. Like, the reality is this. There really is no other source of hope. There really isn't. It's God or nothing for all of us. Anything else we turn to other than God is going to be hollow. The fact is that empty pursuits other than him, they're going to leave us empty. But it's where we tend to go, isn't it? We tend to look to other things to fill us up. I'm not going to get into all that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Things we run to other than God. But not Hannah here. Hannah turned to the Lord, which is exactly what we should be doing. Whatever the problem, whatever the issue, we take it to God. And of course, we all know this, right? We all know this, or at least most of us do. We all know that God is our only hope, but let me ask you this morning, does knowing that, does our, our prayer life really reflect that? Because right? like, what strikes me about Hannah's prayer is that she was, she was willing even to pray for God to do something that was impossible apart from him. Like I said, if you know the story, you know she ends up having a son. The son turns out to be Samuel, a pretty significant figure in the unfolding story of God. But she didn't know that at the time. She didn't know that when she prayed these prayers, when she felt these disappointments. When she prays this prayer, there were absolutely no guarantees God would answer her favorably. And yet still Hannah knew God was her only hope. And that this hope was real. This hope was real. Right? And that's really our key takeaway for today that I just want us to think about. God is our only hope. In every circumstance, in everything we face, God is our only hope. But that hope is real. Because I think a lot of times we look at that first part. We, we look at, yeah, God is our only hope. And we know that. We believe that because we know God can do anything. Even things that are impossible for us are possible for God. Like Hannah believed that. We believe that. At least up here. At least in our minds. Do we believe that not just in our mind but in our soul? Right? Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord. Not just in theory, but in reality. Not just theologically, but that's our experience. Not just in our words, but in our actions. This is what challenged me a lot this week as I 
read through this story again. God is our only hope. Yeah, I know that. But remember, that hope is real. He's real. So this is a season, right? New Year's. That's all right, you can let it go. Um, this is a season of New Year's resolutions. Right? We, like, we all have hopes for the, the new year that things will go differently or better than before. And I want to ask you today, what about your spiritual hopes? Not just the, oh, I want to lose a few pounds. I want to read more. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to go in. What about your spiritual hopes? Like, what do you want to see God do? What are you crying out to God for? For instance, like, who, who do you want to see come to know Jesus that doesn't know him yet? What kind of impact are you hoping to have on those around you? What's, what's the stronghold or strongholds in your life that you, you need, an, you need a, like a breakthrough? You need something to change. And are we actually praying for any of those things? Yeah, God is our only hope. We know that, but are we, are we seeking Him out because we know that that hope is real? That that power is real? That our God is real and He answers prayers? Are we turning to the God of the impossible, right? Asking Him to make it possible? That's what Hannah did. God is our only hope. He's the only one that can answer our prayers. But that hope is very real. He really can do it. So what I want us to do this morning is just think about what's stirring in our heart that we need to take to Him this morning. What is it that you need to ask for? What is it that you need to trust Him in? To pour out your heart to Him about? And maybe that's really prevalent because of a circumstance that's going on in your life. Maybe it's really prevalent because, hey, it's the new year and I've been thinking about that. Maybe this is just kind of hitting you for the first time and there's something that God is just sparking in you. So I want to just take a minute or two and give us an opportunity to pray. Like if we can't do that in church, then we're not here for the right reasons, right? Let's take a few moments and be praying pouring out our heart to God over the things in your life that you feel you need him to hear, to answer, and to move, no matter how impossible it seems. Let's just take a minute or two quietly, and then I'll, I'll wrap us up in prayer. Lord God, this morning we want to acknowledge these things that are stirring in our heart, these things that maybe have just popped up today as, as something something as we've heard this story that is, it's just been sparked in us because you're speaking to us. You're talking to us. You're, you're prompting that. Maybe it's something we've been battling with for a long time like Hannah did. Maybe it seems like a, a small thing, but it's, it's really really aching our heart. Maybe it is not a small thing at all. It is. It seems impossible. It is impossible for us. You, God, are our hope. You're our only hope. 
And so these things that are stirring in our heart, these prayers, we're offering them to you. We want to offer them in faith. We want to trust you. We know that's not always easy, but help us to trust you and to know that you are a God who is real, who answers prayers, who works in incredible ways, who, who can do the impossible. You can do anything. There is no such thing as impossible for you, even though it feels that way for us. And we know that when we offer our prayers to you, we might not always get the answer that we're wanting. We're trusting that you hear us, that you know what's best, and we offer these prayers to you in hope, in faith, trusting that whatever you deem best is is really what's best for us. Hear us, God, this morning. And Lord, answer these prayers according to your will. Help us to continue to pour out our hearts like Hannah did in big and small ways to be seeking after you and to do it with all that we are. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Guys, I I just want to say this as as we close, and Scott's going to come on up and and close us with some announcements. I want to say this as we close, that um, it's been, uh, (laughs) I I, I can't share details, but I can say that there's been a lot of difficult things that have been popping up in people's lives, uh, even in the last 24 hours or so. And... um, You know, sometimes when that's going on, um, we know that God is up to something good. And uh, whether we want to believe it or not, we know that there's there's an enemy who doesn't want that something good to take place, right? So uh, be encouraged. Be encouraged that the difficulties that you may be going through, God is, is longing for you to come to him. And I think he's up to something here. So thanks for being with us this morning. Scott, would you, uh, would you close us up with a few announcements? Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.